still is. Can you say amen again? It's good morning. By God's grace, we're going to enjoy a continued blessed Sabbath. And that song is such a beautiful song, one that the Lord's put on my heart, even as I'm anticipating this message. And the, the message this morning, you have an opportunity to be a distinct part of, and I'm hoping that you will prayerfully consider that. Let's pray. Lord, we're here in your house and we're asking for your presence. We want to banish all things that would rob us of the blessing you desire to give us. And we desire to be one in the Spirit and one in the Lord. So I'm praying now, bless us. May this be a, a beautiful journey. May we be encouraged by it. And may we not be afraid of whatever role you might give us to play. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, I want to start with a story. Uh, you're looking at Porta Memorial Hospital, which was built on 40 acres, uh, probably 60, 70 years ago. It's been, it's been a good little while, maybe only 50. I want to tell you the story of how this hospital came into being. This morning, I'm going to talk with you about our health message. I'm going to talk with you about our health lifestyle. I'm going to talk to you about our health obligations and duties, and I'm going to challenge you because what we believe has special relevance. Are we living it? That's what I want to talk with you about. Our health message matters, and it matters more right now than most of us have thought about, and I'm going to challenge you to really consider how that should take shape in your life. Years ago, there was a banker by the name of H.M. Porter who had come to Colorado um, prospecting, as it were, or homesteading. He got a 40-acre tract. He and his brother, uh, at least he, actually rode uh, for the Pony Express for the few months that it was actually uh, operating. He also, with his brother, brought the telegraph. Now, he had a habit of escaping the Colorado winters, and he would go to Southern California. And when he was in Southern California, he developed what the history calls a heavy cold. And he wanted to know what to do to deal with this heavy cold. So he was directed to one of the sanitariums, I believe the Glendale Health Sanitarium. Now, a sanitarium differs from an acute care medical hospital in that it works more on the lines of cooperating with the natural body systems for health. So hydrotherapy, diet, massage, uh, poultices, these kinds of things. Well, when he was at the Glendale Sanitarium, he had a wonderful experience with the godly doctors and nurses. And um, while he was there, he actually got a hydrotherapy treatment. And while he was getting this hydrotherapy treatment, he fell asleep. When he woke up, the boy who had been uh, taking care of that hydrotherapy, uh, the systems, and my father-in-law used to work in the Battle Creek Sanitarium, lots of water involved in some of these systems and the need for some pretty careful attentiveness he woke up feeling so much better, um, he offered the boy a $1 tip. Now, this was in the early 1900s, about 100 years ago. It was quite a bit of money. The boy said, no, I can't take that tip. I'm already remunerated or being paid by the sanitarium, and, and I don't feel like I should be paid twice for what I'm doing. Well, he finished his stay. He went back to Denver, and uh, in those days, they did all the accounting by hand. And as they were going over the books, they discovered that Mr. Porter had paid 45 cents too much. 
Now, of course, today that's not even enough to buy a postage stamp with. But in, the early, in 1928, it was still a little bit of money. So they wrote him a check and sent it to him. Um, he promptly returned the check saying, in effect, and I have it all in my notes, but I have a lot to get through today. He effectively returned the check saying, I feel that I'm so much more indebted to you. Please put this back in the general fund. Well, later on, he was in California again, this time with his daughter, and he developed another heavy cold. And this time, he inquired if there was an institution similar to the one that he had been to. This time, he ended up in Paradise Valley Sanitarium. And in one of these stays, uh, actually the first day, they didn't know this, but every morning, he would crack his door just a little bit, and he would, he would look out at the old man across the room who had Parkinson's. And there was a young nurse that would, a uh, student nurse that would come along and he, she would so patiently feed and care for this individual. Well, upon returning from Paradise Valley, uh, little did, did we realize that the fruit of honesty, integrity, and kindness had taken root in Mr. Porter's life. And he got a hold of one of the directors in the sanitarium, wanted to know who was in charge of their general corporation. And he, after a little bit of corresponding, uh, chose to give $330,000 and a portion of his 40-acre estate there in Denver to build this hospital. Before it was built, another $50,000 was given. And then when his son, I believe his name was Will, died in the 1950s, he gave one-sixth of his $13 million estate for Porter Hospital. And I'm telling you this story this morning because I was so touched reading this history of him just barely opening his door an inch or two and watching these kind Christian nurses. I'm going to tell you another story, but I don't have the picture of, of how Kettering came to be. In the 1950s, there was a polio uh, epidemic ravaging our land. And the daughter, or daughter-in-law and son of the famous inventor Charles Kettering, who was a vice president for General Motors and an amazing inventor, were living in Chicago. When the hospitals filled up in Chicago and there was no more room for the polio um, uh, patients, they were sent out to Hinsdale, which was somewhat of a less-than-ideal, less-than-up-to-date facility. Mrs. Kettering... Watch those very same beautifully kind Christian nurses and doctors operating. And I don't mean like in the room. I just mean uh, in the surgery suite. I just mean dealing with the patient. She saw nurses foregoing their lunch hour, standing by the bedsides of moms and dads, crying with the parents. There was a man who came uh, with the Caterines because now they were getting serious about their intentions and the man, instead of going and looking at all the hospital, chose to sit in the uh, physician's uh, lounge. And he sat there talking to the physicians. He especially talked to the non-Adventist physicians. And in the course of events, uh, he learned that these non-Adventist physicians wanted to put their patients in the Hinsdale system because of the cleanliness, the excellent equipment, and the wonderful, kind Christian care. Now, this is a theme you're seeing repeating. So, the Ketterings offered to give enough money to put a 100-bed hospital there near Dayton, Ohio. They were told by the community, we need, we need more. So, they went to the community and said, well, 
you raise enough for another 100 beds, and we'll give more another donation for another 100 beds. While the Kettering Hospital was being built, uh, the wife of the president, I think it was, of National Cash Register, came and was being shown the building by the Ketterings, I believe. And in the process of watching the building go up and, and I believe hearing the story, she just spontaneously, if you believe in such things, without the Spirit, with the Spirit, we believe in more than that, said, I want to give $500,000. The Kettering Hospital was given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church with no strings attached, or very few. I want you to know something. Whether it's the hill beautiful that we call Loma Linda, where Elder Burden uh, took a first step to get this thing going, or whether it's one of these sanitariums that are gone by and now the acute medical care that's operating in its, well, I shouldn't say in its place, but as another form of medicine, God's hand has been over this church in a special, special way with a special, special message. And this morning, I want to talk to you about it. Now, on Tuesday of this week, on the one-year anniversary of the Great Barentine Declaration, which I wish you were all aware of, this has almost a million signatures on it, uh, many tens of thousands of physicians. It's basically a statement that in dealing with this pandemic, it's not so much one size fits all with lockdowns and everybody getting the same treatment, but treat the vulnerable. It was founded in a special way. It was founded by an Oxford doctor, a Yale doctor, and a Stanford doctor, um, signed by, I don't know if it's up to 70 some thousand medical practitioners. On that very day, this last week, uh, the Liberty and Health Alliance started a document called Liberty of Conscience. And uh, yesterday, the total was up to 1,254 total people. So about 2,000 people a day are signing this, one every 45 seconds. 865 pastors, 2,256 uh, 2, medical professionals. This is an appeal to those who hold, hold sway and influence inside of our church, but it's growing to be more than that, that the church stand vigorously against forced medical procedures in regards to the pandemic. And I want to encourage you, you can go straight to the Village website, it'll take you right there. I want to encourage you to look at it and sign it. Uh, if, if you're watching today, I want to encourage all of you, look at it, see if this is what you think we believe as Seventh-day Adventists. And when I'm done preaching this sermon, I am here before you this morning as a defense attorney uh, for the truth, and I hope that the case I make will motivate you to do more than just sit and listen. And why does it matter? It matters because these cases tried before uh, the, the courts and how they end up shaping out in the end affect us. Now, uh, Pastor Michael Kasurawana, one of our associates here, as we were reflecting on the situation in our country, which right now is about dialogue, uh, there aren't many laws, there are some uh, executive orders, etc., that need to be actually played out in dialogue to where we get law. But the culture is in the midst of a conversation right now, and the church is to be salt and light. And he reminded me that as a literature evangelist leader, even in the Michigan Conference, that when they're out selling books door to door, they actually reference to case law and the resulting legislative law as a part of it because in the early 2000s, you can see here, this is dated 2002 if you can read it, there was a battle on over whether or not the Jehovah's Witnesses had the right to go door to door and canvas or solicit adherence to their faith. It turns out that the court said 
yes, they have that right. So the ban that was in a small Ohio town prohibiting them from their door-to-door work was struck down. Pastor Kusurawana reminded me that Seventh-day Adventist literature work stands under the shadow of this church being willing to go all the way to the mat in regards to defending what they believe were religious liberties. This uh, document that is called the Liberty of Conscience document has some very interesting things developing. On Wednesday night, uh, there was a StreamYard and YouTube uh, Facebook event I think it was the next day we got this letter. Now, this letter comes from a very high-ranking spiritual leader in Canada. I want to read it with you. It says, Good evening. I submitted a request on your website requesting the permission to use the Liberty and Conscience document with our faith slash tradition slash context. The entire document is excellent and well-written. I would like to adopt the references to the SDA, not for any nefarious reasons, and replace it with our faith tradition designation as blank. And that's where his faith tradition, I I took it out. I'm going to give them just a little privacy to operate here. Uh, I would also like to cite and credit the work to the creators. If you were to grant access, how would you like me to proceed with the sightings? Now, notice this last paragraph. It's super important. I would really appreciate an immediate response as here in Canada, the government is moving very, very fast to force vaccinations. Thank you in advance for your assistance in this matter. Why is this letter so important and what is the case I am about to make? Well, I'm not gonna be inductive today or deductive today. Actually, I will be deductive. I'm not gonna be inductive. I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say it and I'm gonna tell it again. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is at a unique moment in place of history. Because the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as the Jehovah's Witnesses went before and made a way for those other faith denominations that still believe in door-to-door work, be it Mormons or Adventists or Baptists or whoever it might be, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, with its history and its teaching in regards to health and the sacred stewardship of the body temple is in a similar place at this very moment in time as court cases line up relative to what is the prerogative of the state and what is a religious exemption. I put this letter up so you can see that in Canada, there are people of other denominations, maybe even as Jesus said, other sheep not yet that are of this fold that aren't of this fold. What I want you to see is there are many other Christians who are saying to themselves, this is a breaching of the proper division between the church and its adherents and the state. As of uh, this morning, over a thousand Australians have signed the Liberty of Conscience document. You say, why such a disproportionate 200 plus countries? That's because in Australia, at this very moment, people just like me, Seventh-day Adventist pastors, are just a few weeks away from having to take the vaccine or lose their job. Yes, this is in the Seventh-day Adventist church. We are a worldwide church. We have a worldwide obligation for leading the way in regards to a special moment in history that's built on our history. Dr. Ben Carson appeared Wednesday night on that Zoom meeting, and this is what he said, vaccination mandates have no place in a free society. Now, am I trying to pit one doctor against another? Not necessarily, but I would like it to be understood that our preeminent physicians does actually happen to believe that the vaccine is appropriate if you choose to use it. 
but it being forced upon you. And this is the posture of your pastor and the posture of your church, including the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church. So what else might we need to do or need to say? This week, I received some very interesting interactions. You understand that one of the roles of this church is a ministry to the larger church. My first obligation is to you. At the same time, what does a church of a thousand plus members in a county with 7,000 members, what is its mission? I mean, is it just so that you can come and not be bored for 45 minutes during a Sabbath morning? Or is it actually that we have a job to do as a larger church in a larger gathering of Seventh-day Adventists? There are all kinds of places all around this division and all around the world that are looking for just a little bit of sense that they're not out of bounds in being able to exercise agency over their own person. I got a call. Actually, I asked my secretary to set an appointment up. Nine o'clock on Tuesday morning, I was talking with a businessman in Southern California, successful businessman, salesman. He said, I cannot coach my son's soccer team because I'm not vaccinated. Well, folks, you know, truth matters. And the last we checked, being outside was a pretty safe place to be um, as long as you were asymptomatic. And, of course, we trust people to do that. Seemed like a strange phone call. Later that day, I talked to two doctors in their internship at a hospital that had denied their religious exemption and wasn't giving them an appeal. Fortunately, we have lawyers, and the lawyers presented a demand letter. These people have their uh, residency hanging in the balance. I don't call these people, folks. I don't set this up. These are the issues we are dealing with in America. And so the husband and the wife have a residency at the exact same hospital, which is not the easiest thing to achieve. And just Trading places in a new residency somewhere else is not the easiest thing to achieve. And finding a place where they could both be together. And since they're married, that's how most married people prefer to live. Later in the day, I was talking with a non-Adventist doctor in this community. And somehow towards the end of the visit, he started talking about vitamin D. In the course of it, I engaged him just a bit. And before long, we were having an all-out discussion about what's going on in our society. He was dismayed and beleaguered at some level and told me in the course of the event that a fellow doctor had gotten a hold of him and because of some of the things he had said suggested his job might be in question that my friends is not the kind of culture that has shaped this free society or that is to be shaping it in the future and then one more this week lady calls our church she works remotely she is an interfacing uh, component of the health system with new mothers. Now, I know this is a picture of a nurse in the presence of new mothers. This woman works remotely. She almost never has face-to-face interaction, but her hospital in Colorado has determined that unless she gets the vaccine, she cannot keep her job. Now, something's wrong here, and I'm going to go just a little bit farther. I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning trying to be ready for what I was going to say for you. At a little after six this morning, which was just a few minutes before I planned to get up, I get a text. There's a person this morning who's in a hospital not terribly far from here who's dying of COVID. They have comorbidities. I don't know if they're vaccinated. But the relatives asked the physicians if they could administer vitamin C and vitamin D, I'm guessing intravenously. And the response of the doctor was, this is not an experimental hospital. Now, I had someone tell me between services that 
on a broadcast last Saturday, Dr. Schwelt, who has a lot of MedCram presentations, suggested in one of the seminars he was in that there is a very large percentage of off-label use of safe drugs to care for people. And by the way, we do call this practicing medicine. I need you to be praying for this lady. If I could run away from all of these things and never talk to you anymore about it, I would be at some level a relieved man. Not necessarily happy, but relieved. But I cannot. And this morning I'm here to tell you that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is especially postured to play a special role. John Stuart Mill once said, let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. In other words, stand along the sidelines and watch. Bad men, this is attributed to Edwin Burke, but it's more properly given with credit to John Stuart Mill, bad men need do nothing more to compass that ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. Now this statement really got me. One of you sent it to me. He is not a good man who without a protest allows wrong to be committed in his name and with the means which he helps to supply because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. Now, let's talk legal for just a minute. United States Court of Appeals deals with Pennsylvania and a few other close-by states just to step away from the Supreme Court. The question is, when they're trying to decide about these religious exemptions, is, is it religious and is it sincere? We're going to try to update this just a little bit. We're going to go different. Thank you very much. Appreciate our audiovisual team. Can you say amen? amen. All right. Uh, we have definitely the best people right here. So when the Third Circuit Court of Appeals is trying to determine about how they should rule on some of these court cases that make their way up to them, they ask, is it sincere and is it religious? Those would certainly be good, two good starting points. But then they've determined to decide what religious is a three-point test. Now, the Third Circuit is in the minds of some uh, legal commentators a, a more influencing court. And if the first court to rule on something tends to set what's called precedent, and then other courts are not likely to go against it. So let's answer these three questions for Adventism. First, a religion addresses fundamental and ultimate questions having to do with deep and imponderable matters. So let us ask ourselves at the beginning of this brief history of our theology and experience with dynamics of health as a Seventh-day Adventist church, does the componentry of being made in the image of God and giving agency over this amazing machine doesn't have any ultimate questions that are deep and imponderable? In other words, this God who wove together on two strands of deoxyribonucleic acid, this double-stranded helix, is there anything imponderable and deep about the fact that we were made in His image? He knows the number of hairs on our head, and He's paying close attention to when we get up and when we lie down, when we go in and when we come out, before we speak a word, He knows it. In other words, 
This componentry of health and the sanctuary of God dwelling in the inner person, is there anything deep and imponderable about this? You get to decide. The second question, a religion is comprehensive in nature. It consists in a belief system as opposed to isolated teaching. The problem going on in society right now is that there are many Christians throwing down the Corinthian man- mandate to remember your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The problem is there's not very many religions that are really practicing that, and it looks a little bit isolated and random. Is there a religion out there that actually has a systemic, or systematic, I should say, teaching in regards to how the sanctity of the body and the sanctification of the mind are related? You get to decide that. And thirdly, a religion often can be recognized by the signs of certain formal and external signs. So I want to ask yourself, is the fact that half of the adherents of Adventism, the fact that many of them have some very unique dietary habits and rest habits and know about eight doctors we call the New Start doctors, is the fact that they have books like Mind, Character, and Personality, and Temperance, and Councils on Diets and Foods. Is there anything that is recognizable about external, practical religion being lived out in the life? You get to answer that. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel, chapter 1. A few brief observations from this initial chapter in the story of a captive at a crucial moment in the history of Israel. Daniel and his three friends find themselves on the bottom side of the most preeminent and intellectual society of their day. And what I want you to see very quickly, because I have an awful lot to go over today, is that Daniel was special, and so were his friends. But they made some special decisions which created some special, in the sense of parenthetical observation, situations. Verse 5 What I want you to see is the king appointed for them a daily ration ration from the king's choice food. Now, your version may not be the New American Standard, which is an exceptionally accurate one. Yours may say the king's delicacies. It may say the royal table. But I want you to notice two times in one verse, it's very clear the king is in on this. It's probably a favor extended to his future ruling vassal kings, his subjects that will go back and rule if his kingdom can last forever. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are to work for the king, and he's showing them favor. But what I want you to see is how many times Daniel goes out of his way to say this was direct and intentional from the highest order. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Verse 10, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king who has appointed your food. Verse 13, then our appearance, let our appearance be observed in your presence and the, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Verse 16, so the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they drank. What I want you to understand, folks, is that there was exceptional favor and intentionality on behalf of the leader of this great kingdom. It is not without societal pressure and immense uh, sensitivities that Daniel and his three friends say, this really isn't going to work. And from a religious point of view and from a standpoint of unclean meats, uh, we have a group of four 
which look at verse 6 very carefully. I want to make this point as well. Verse 6, it says, now from among them. That's talking about the captives from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. For some reason, most went along to get along. And the truth of the matter is we have a record of prophetic history because four people said, I will go along every way I absolutely can. And we know from Daniel chapter 6 he had an excellent spirit. I mean, these were the most noble, beautiful people you've ever met. There was no high-minded libertarianism in all of this. No, no, no. There was this amazing, subservient honor. But it was to God first. But those attributes weren't lost on others who held authority. And may every Seventh-day Adventist or conscientious Christian, listen to me, recognize that call to the nobility and dignity of Daniel and his friends. God's people must be the most credible people on the face of the planet. But I need you to know something. Out of this moment, there's a little traction for the credibility of Daniel. And so when Daniel chapter 2 comes along and the word on the streets is, hey, sorry, king's upset, time for you to die, Daniel says, I need a little time. And he gets ushered into the king. Now, we know his appearance and his demeanor and his intelligence is superior. We know his Christian experience is impressive. God has used the spirit to move through Daniel to move on the heart of Melzar, the chief of the eunuchs. And that same spirit goes before him with Nebuchadnezzar. But what I want you to understand, credibility grows. And sometimes you've got to take a risk. Daniel takes a risk in Daniel chapter 1, but because his demeanor is so noble and beautiful, he's listened to. When Daniel chapter 2 comes along, it's the risk of Daniel chapter 1 that, first of all, sets up deliverance for the rest of the wise men. They're on their way out, except for Daniel. And Daniel gives the glory to God. And what I want you to see also is the clarity of thought, the submission of spirit, the faithfulness to God makes him able to interpret a dream that the king himself can't even remember. Our hearts, our minds, our persons, our bodies, we are a complete one. And the set oneness. And the Seventh-day Adventist church has acknowledged this in doctrine and practice for the last 160 years. The second thing I want you to see is this observation from the Bible commentary. God could use Daniel because Daniel was a man of principle, a man of sterling character. And notice this last phrase, a man whose chief business was to live for God. You know, there are a lot of Christians out there whose chief business they say is to live for God. But if you touch their time or you touch their treasure or you touch their table, you've touched the wrong things. Seventh-day Adventists don't live like that. But there are some Seventh-day Adventists that might be listening to me for whom the Spirit is prompting a little higher ground in this journey of helpful living. And if you touch their table, they resist. I'm appealing to my church this morning to come back to their roots as a, as a health reforming movement, as a movement of health ministry with the right arm of the gospel and the beauty of Daniel as we make this journey. Now, this is a book you would all be pleased to read, the story about H.M. Porter, the story about the Ketterings, it's in this book, amazing book, tells how from beginning to end God was with us in this work. I want to start this morning with Joseph Bates. He's the man in the middle. Joseph Bates is a man who is ahead of his time in almost every way, but especially health. When he was a young man um, in his 30s, he was so successful, captain of his own boat, a man got sick on that boat. And it really touched him, and the man died. 
Now, Bates was not religious. But at the end of that trip, he was doing some serious thinking. He came home. He studied, as was his case. He was an intelligent man. And he decided he wanted to get baptized. As he was changing back into dry clothes from the baptism, he said to the pastor, Pastor, I'd like to start a temperance society, and I want your help. You be, in effect, the co-founder with me. Well, the pastor didn't do it, but after Bates had dried off, he made himself his own statement of pledge. He went around to his neighbors, and he started asking them to sign it. We're in good Adventist history this morning, friends, for us to be a part of a liberty and conscience document, because this is where the genesis of our pioneers was at, affecting the world to be a better place. Uh, Bates went on to become a vegetarian. Uh, Bates's uh, temperance society, he thought, was the first there in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Turns out there was an American Christian temperance society that was uh, in Boston. It started a year ahead of him. But Bates was ahead in this. Bates asked his temperance society to swear off liquor. Now that was gin, rum, brandy, and whiskey. Now he tried to get them off cider and wine. But those first 13 people who signed up said no. And of course, beer was in that as well. These were common things people drank. And so he could only go as far as he went. But Bates was an amazing pioneer in health reform. One day, he was with his wife and having tea. This was long before there were any visions on this. One night, he was with his wife having tea at another person's house. The tea was stronger than usual. He went to bed that night but couldn't fall asleep till after midnight. Well, he was an intelligent person and spirit-led. He reasoned from cause to effect, and he said, that's it. I'm done with uh, tea and coffee as well. I mean, this man was out in front of the spirit of prophecy, but not the spirit of the Lord. Ellen White will say this, and by the way, she had her first uh, vision on health in 1863, just weeks after the first general conference had ended in Otsego, Michigan. She writes, many, even of those who profess to believe the special truths for this time, are lamentably ignorant with regard to health and temperance. Now let's just pause. Before this sermon's over, I'm going to show you a half a dozen books. I think the question you'll need to ask yourself is when the last time you turned a single page of a single one? And have we come so far and are we actually sliding back? They're ignorant with regard to health and temperance. They need to be educated line upon line, precept upon precept. The subject must be kept fresh before them. The matter must not be passed over as non-essential for nearly every family needs to be stirred upon this question. The conscience, huh, notice, this isn't just for talking about mandates, friends. This is about our personal lives. The conscience must be aroused to the duty of practicing the principles of true reform. God requires that His people shall be temperate in all things unless they practice true temperance. Ooh, this is a powerful end. They will not, they cannot be susceptible to the sanctifying influence of the truth. Listen, you are living in the darkest era in the last 200 years of world history. And if you don't think the spirit of darkness is seeking to settle on us, you might want to read that line again because we need to be susceptible to the spirit, the sanctifying influence of truth. What she's really saying is we're at another Daniel chapter 1 moment. John Harvey Kellogg is a young man, very promising, Ellen White's encouragement. As an older man, what fills the chapters between? Well, some very interesting moments. For over 40 years, John Harvey Kellogg would once a week stand in one of the parlors 
of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and he would invite all the invalids in and he would have the, the question in the box moment. This is him doing that. He went on to build a building that Ellen White, under the direction of the Lord, said, don't build it so big. She believed in much smaller organizations without this kind of colossal leveraging power. Of course, God himself intervened in some of these things. But John Harvey Kellogg left a, and his brother Will left an exceptionally long legacy on America because those post-toasties and those Kellogg's cornflakes all come from people that were raised as Seventh-day Adventists and believed in this health message. Battle Creek Scientific Foods, even into the 1930s, was an element. And let's talk about the soybean. Now we're going to jump on our history. We have nothing to forget except the way God has led us in the past and His past teachings. Facts concerning the soybean. Soybean products from La Sierra brand. Here's Loma Linda Foods, the bread and the health food uh, factory. We start looking at St. Helena Sanitarium. We've got Battle Creek Special Purpose Foods. Here we have postcards that you can take with you or send about what they have to offer. We have vegetable milk and cheese. This is from Madison Health Foods. This is just north of Nashville, Tennessee. La Sierra recipes, more Madison foods. By the way, let's go back and look at some of the names. Uh, you got soy burgers, Vigoroast. I don't think we eat that anymore. But some of the other things on there we may still do. Pro Toast, how to make these things from Madison Foods. Everybody loves them, it says. And then we have Dr. The China doctor, Dr. Harry Miller, who started 15 hospitals in China and many more clinics and also pioneered the use of soy as a nutritional supplement for the poor of the Far East. Harry Miller is honored. Um, he was a uh, mi uh, missionary to Libya as well, as you can see there. And he ran several companies, including this one, Soyalac. Some of the early days of soy milk weren't too spectacular, if you ask some of our older folk. Not quite like silk and almond milk these days, but it was a start. The Madison Health Food, Madison again. Oh, we're getting more modern. Choplets. And let's get a better picture. And then you didn't know there was a chop letter. This was the Worthington Foods uh, newsletter. And of course, seems a little cheesy today. But back in the day, we hung together because being vegetarian was weird. In the 1970s, late 1970s, when I became a vegetarian, I'm sure my neighbors thought I had a screw loose. But I'll tell you what, I don't regret one of my 40-plus years of being a vegetarian. By God's grace, I convinced my whole family to be vegetarians, and I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And you know, I believe my parents are alive today partially as a latent or secondary influence of the health message of this church. My mom and dad smoked for over 40 years. Praise the Lord, they quit. Why'd they quit? They, they quit because of the power of the Holy Spirit and praying children. But the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been in the forefront of helping people quit addictive substances, including nicotine, five years in advance of the Surgeon General. But that's not my subject. There's the first Worthington Foods plant and meet the vegetable cow, the Loma Linda line, more soy milk, and then Little Links, one of my wife's favorites. I don't know if they even make it anymore. Ready Burger. And this was my first introduction to vegetarianism, and I thought I had just taken a bite from something that Charles Goodyear or Henry W. Firestone had created. Um, this was not what I considered food, especially anything close to a hot dog 40 years ago. But I adjusted. Of course, we don't need to eat a lot of this anyway, but if you grew up like me on a meat and potatoes diet, transitioning away from that cold turkey, pardon the pun, 
is uh, difficult. Now let's talk about the books that shape our life, Christian temperance and Bible hygiene. I'm building a case, friends, that right from the foundation of this church, every fiber of its being was shaped by a message that believed in the holistic approach to the gospel, touching all facets of a person's life. Christian temperance, the ministry of healing. These are not just good books. These are inspired in our community faith and understanding with inspiration for the healing of mind, body, and soul. Councils on health. How many pages like this medical ministry can we add to the storyline? Temperance and a different version of it. Councils on diets and foods. The, the health food ministry. I like that. That's an adaptation of councils on diets and food. And of course, that would go along with uh, forks over knives, which I have a slide on in just a second here. More councils on diets and foods. Forks over knives. One of you sent me a few months ago an article that went along this line right here. Could changing our diets defeat COVID-19? Forks Over Knives did a study to show that a low-fat, low-animal diet actually reduced your risk of getting COVID-19 by many multiples of percent. And here's a book that you probably won't want to sit around reading unless you need to fall asleep. It is a 1,300-page document. You can get it free. Go back and watch this video on the, on the web. You can get this 1,300-page document, History of the Seventh-day Adventist Work with Soy Foods, Vegetarianism, Meat Alternatives, Wheat Gluten, Dietary Fiber, and Peanut Butter. And by the way, we were leaders in most all of that. 1,300 pages. There's a summary on the web, and it basically goes on to show the, the seminal and primary influence of Seventh-day Adventist health messaging. And here's an interesting article. Paper explores the global influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on diet. Loma Linda University study examines Adventist contributions to vegan nutrition. And then lastly, you didn't know this, that when the author of the Blue Zones was doing his study, he said, we have a problem. What's the problem? The problem is we have no cities in America that are Blue Zones. Oh, we don't except for one that has 26,000 residents in a small little sleepy town at the base of a hill called Beautiful with 9,000 Seventh-day Adventists. You know that as Loma Linda. Interesting. So I won't bother reading that because that's what it says. The Soy Info Center says, no other organization or group of people has played a more important role than Seventh-day Adventists in inducing soy foods, vegetarianism, meat alters, wheat gluten, dietary fiber, or peanut butter to the Western world. Now, you need to understand something. Everything we believe in about diet is linked with one other amazing ministry of this church. And I want to say praise the Lord for what he's done. Because here we are at a darkening time in civic and religious liberty history. And what other church is out there that has 160 years of health teaching, health practice and health food to the entire world. But this church has one other thing that very few other churches have, and that is they have a religious liberty department almost as old. Could you say amen? amen. Listen, no church at this moment on the face of the globe is positioned to let its light shine in this hour like the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have a religious liberty organization, and we have a health department. We have a health history and a history of people like A.T. Jones standing up before the United States Senate dealing with Blair in 1888 who was wanting to make Sunday laws. 
Our church has the ability to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses in liberty to go door to door. It has this divine opportunity and hour to reinstitute credibility and prominence. This church was, pro was prominent beyond its size by exponential numbers in its early days. Ellen White was invited to speak in many, many places on health topics. Seventh-day Adventism has always at least most always, had an excellence of spirit, a consistency and integrity of lifestyle and thought that has brought it credibility like few other organizations. And what God is doing now is he's seeking to bring credibility on something we have credibility to bring to the table on. Consistency, complete explanation and practice of things that are not just deep and imponderable, but things that are practical, practical and give up to seven to ten years longer life and a higher quality of life. Why would God give us this moment in time in history? Because there are many other faithful people, Christians and none, who know something is wrong. But they don't understand these deep and imponderable things, and they don't have 150 or 60 years of teaching on health and practice of health and health foods and inspired books, and they don't have 100 plus years of religious liberty history and organizational unity. You see, friends, God is giving us a chance to be credible on this before the bigger issues that require credibility come to bear on this society. I want you to be thinking about this. Just two days ago, maybe even yesterday, let's see what we have for a date here. It's the 7th. 16 or 14 students here at Western Michigan University won a law. They won a case. They were told they couldn't play on their team unless they were vaccinated. This is important, friends, because just like the Jehovah's Witnesses set some precedences in the court, these things matter. But why should the athletes be leading the way? Why? Do they have 160 years of inspired teaching and lifestyle practice? Do they have a retinue of legal experts that could put their best minds together in prayer and come with a unified approach that says, this is religious, it is sincere, it's all-encompassing, it's observable. Do they have this? No. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to who? Just the church? No, to all. All in the house. And there are people that want in. In that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now I'm about to ask you a question. And I want you to read these three verses with me very carefully. This is the condemnation. I might have put the wrong reference up there. I think it's John 1. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. So light came into the world and men loved darkness. They didn't perceive the light, John chapter 1 tells us. So here's the question I have for you. We are locked in a cultural discourse. And I want to say again, 
The issue of Daniel chapter 1 is not food. And the issue of this hour is not vaccines. The issue of this hour is compulsion and force. It is mandates. For those of you that have comorbidities, age, or any concern whatsoever, that vaccine is there. I encourage you to get it. For those of you, however, who don't have that same conscience or conviction, you have the right not to get it. The issue I'm going to say it again is not the vaccines. God bless every individual that chooses to or not to. But the larger issue of the hour is whether or not being made in the image of God, all things imponderable about this fantastic, amazing machine and this relationship with God, is whether or not somebody can force you. And I actually happen to believe that most Seventh-day Adventists are against mandating. As a matter of fact, I had a person sit in this church two weeks ago. They lingered to talk with me. And in the lingering afterwards with almost nobody in the sanctuary, they told me their father died of COVID. In the course of the conversation, I asked them, are you for mandating? And they said, no. And they got a little bit more verbose in their resistance to mandating. The issue of the hour is not the vaccine for the third time. It is the compulsion. And I have yet to find anybody with the exception of maybe one who's been willing to say to me, I believe in forcing you to get the vaccine. And as I said in prayer meeting, I appreciate Andrews University who has themselves drawn the line that there will be no mandating for the vaccine. Can you say amen? amen. And every institution and every individual joining together to say that this is an issue of personal choice can be in a position to stand alongside all those Australian pastors and teachers and church members, by the way, who are going to lose their jobs if they choose not. And so for every faith leader from every large movement, and that letter I put up on the beginning of this, this sermon was from a very high up official in a church multiple times bigger than the Adventist church. It's time for God to move. So the question I have, since the world loves darkness, did the world all of a sudden turn on the light? Is mandating really the way to love your neighbor? Did they go, did this world go from being in an ever-darkening cycle of moral and civic challenge to all of a sudden be enlightened with the lightness of God? You get to decide. But the Bible says that a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And I need you to know something. It was hard for Daniel to say, you know what, I'm going to be different. He went through a moment of risk and probably doubt and much prayer. Cities are probably their prettiest in the dark, actually. Arise, Isaiah says, shine. For thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness. 
Then the offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring. Notice the last few words. Whom the Lord has blessed. Now we have an immersion program coming up in this church in a few weeks where we are not only treating the sick or those who would like a health reset, but we are training professionals, doctors, and everybody in the health spectrum or not in the health spectrum. I'm almost done. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point in its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. The ministry that's about to happen in this church starting in November is the most intensive ministry I've ever seen stateside. And I want to say praise the Lord and, and may God bless those who donate their time and their energies and work from early in the morning till late at night. May God bless this church as it shows other churches that the kind of ministry that involves the sanitarium type of health, and by the way, it might be time for the North American Division, as I said before, to consider, and that's all of us, maybe this conference, maybe this church, to consider the fact that maybe we need to have something other than acute care as a part of our medical repertoire. Maybe we need to officially support something that goes back to the roots of John Harvey Kellogg and Madison College, etc. But this work is to be something that you understand and that you can give to your neighbor. That document is on our website. A number of people sign in. I'm going to leave you with this thought. I flew over this mountain probably two or three times last week. This happens to be the tallest mountain in North America. It's now called Denali. It was once called Mount McKinley, which was probably a mistake because the Ohio senator it was named after uh, never ever went to see it. Uh, it means the great one. It has the highest, if I get this right, you can fact check me, it has the highest vertical gain from the bottom to the top. You know the problem with this mountain? I went to Alaska several times before I saw it because it's right in the middle of the state and it affects weather. It's often in the clouds. I flew probably within three or 4,000 feet of it. But I want to tell you something. There's a phrase out there in society, and this is the last thing I'm going to share. <laughs> There's a phrase out there in society that says, well, this is not a mountain I want to die on. In this church, you've noticed that I've preached no sermons on women's ordination. I've preached no sermons on last day generation theology, last generation theology. I purposely have chosen not to discuss those matters because I feel they have the power to polarize. And it's not that they're not worthy of discussion, but at some level I felt like they could be an inhibition to our unity and our missional focus. I want to see as many men and women involved in ministry as possible. I want to cooperate with the General Conference. So you're saying, Pastor, why are you talking like this right now then? Because when a person's laying in a hospital bed and can't be given vitamin C or D because we're not an experimental hospital, when a person who never sees patients is going to lose her job, when a guy can't be the coach of his kid's soccer team, when two doctors are about to lose, and this is just in the last it's just in the last five days. We've crossed a line from floating through life on the good ship Christian lollipop in America 
and we're headed for some time that we've called trouble. It's a little wake-up and a little work-up so that we're not knocked down when it's time to stand up. This church is the only church that can arise and shine in this moment and say, if it's not visible and systematic, if it's not consistent more than an isolated belief, there are all kinds of people out there who need to know that before Jesus returns, they will need the highest order of spiritual sensibility, which will be tied to physical preparation and thoughtfulness about sanctification of body and preparation of sanctification of mind and soul. You see, friends, this is not a duck and run moment for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is its appointed hour. And if credibility is struck here by proper spirit and proper teaching, there are many sheep of other folds that will say, I have never thought about that. And I've never seen in Daniel these things. I'm appealing to you to sign the document. I'm appealing to you to send it to as many people as you know. I'm appealing to you to pray for all departments of our denomination. And right now, there are important meetings going on in our church. I'm appealing to you to pray. Take some time today to pray. I've chosen this mountain. And if I don't come down off the mountain because it's a mountain I chose to die on, it's a worthy cause. I'm not losing my job. I'm not losing my future career. I'm not in Australia and I'm not in Canada. But those are members that are part of my global family of faith. Can you say amen? And the, the country we call America, from which most of these missionaries started from, needs to stand with them so they don't stand alone. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The same God who moved on H.M. Porter and the Ketterings, he's going to provide for his church every step of the way. It only gets more exciting from here, friends. Don't be afraid. Follow Jesus. Be respectful. Be courteous. Be noble. Be dignified. Be humble. Be cooperative. Be all those things. But be true and stand and let the Lord guide you. Amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn.
pretense of ease be left behind and onward to the fray. Salvation's helmet on each head with truth all girt about. The earth shall tremble neath the tread and echo with a shout. Faith is the victory Bless us with that excellent spirit that was a part of Daniel's life that made an impression before the crisis and that maintained itself in the midst of the challenge. Bless us, Lord, with courage born of love for those whose livelihoods and dreams hang in the balance. I pray, Lord, especially for our health and temperance departments and our religious liberty departments that they would sense in this hour a divine call to protect the right to choose and steward the full agency of men and women made in the image of God. And I'm praying, Lord, that it won't be only that Well, I'm praying, Lord, that will be a robust protest against force. Now, Lord, may none of us consider ourselves good when we stand along the sidelines for another to bear the full weight of a crisis. Shepherd our church, shepherd us individually. And bless us now, I pray, with a sweet and beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you that Jesus came and led the way and stood alone for us. In Jesus' name, amen.